Thank you, Doug. Whew, great weekend, great opportunity to be involved in our community. Well, it is with sadness that I miss Barbara Marvel as well as so many of you, and uh, I'm going to miss her sitting right over there for a lot of years, 91 years old, preceded to heaven by two husbands and a son who died of cancer. And uh, how you walk through that stuff and keep such a Christ-centered attitude is, well, you just need to hang around people like Barbara to know how that happens and without any bitterness or resentment and just understanding how good the Lord is and what a blessing it is to be, in her case, his daughter. So, uh, and thank you to, to both Jane and Sonia who have stepped in to take care of all the stuff with Barbara since she didn't have any family here. That's part of the beauty of the family of God is you step in when there's no family there to do that stuff. And so you can pray for those two. They've been carrying a heavy load. Any of you have helped close up people's final affairs, parents and stuff, uh, you have an appreciation, right? And so thank you, Jane. Thank you, Sonia, wherever you are. Thank you very much. Uh, I forgot to mention earlier, we forgot to put it in the thing for Robin to announce, but we are doing a one-day Saturday uh, membership seminar as well as the Sunday morning thing on uh, September 8th from 9 to 2. So if that works better for you, we'd love to have you jump in there. Well, grab something with the scriptures on it and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, we want to jump in here, and we're in this last chapter of 1 Peter. And I thought it might be good this morning actually to read the entire last chapter, and then we're going to come back and jump into verses uh, 5 through 7 there. Uh, just phenomenally practical as God's Word always is. So 1 Peter chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1, and you can follow along as I read. These are the living and active words of God for us this morning. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sword gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, Clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering have been accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, 
strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Salvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, would you use, well, just the reading of your word to accomplish what you intend for it this morning, and especially as we jump in to these few verses that you have addressed to us. Uh, Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are fertile for these your words to take root in. Thank you for telling us what the true grace of God looks like so that we can stand in it and not cheat ourselves out of anything that you have for us. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as uh, the Apostle Peter uh, comes to the end of the letter here and in this chapter, even reading through it, you can see how uh, it's written to a congregation, probably very similar to us here today, uh, that were scattered around in what we know of as Turkey today. Uh, But in this, you can see that he addresses different people. Two weeks ago, we looked at how he spoke to the elders, the leaders of the church. This morning, he then singles out, some of your translations say young ones, some say young men. We'll get to that in just a moment. And then he speaks to the entire body of Christ, all of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ and are a part of the church. And uh, and then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about how we relate to each other. We're gonna, he's going to tell us why that's important because of our relationship with God. We're going to look at that this morning. Next week, we'll look at how we are to stand against Satan and that we have an adversary that would love to bring us harm and damage. And yet, if we will stand strong in the true grace of God, we will be a part of his dominion growing in our own hearts and lives and in the world in which we live. And then the last few verses are some neat uh, just uh, recognition of people. And uh, you probably can't wait until we get to the application of 14 of greeting one another with a kiss of love. So I'm not going to tell you which Sunday that's going to be, by the way. Uh, We'll have some fun with that one as well. So these are exhortations from the Apostle Peter. And you might remember that the word exhortation literally means to come alongside somebody. And so if I was going to exhort um, Mario here, it would be the picture of calling Mario to come alongside me and to take him down and teach him the things that the Lord has taught me. And so here we have the Apostle Paul, whom we know more about than any of the other apostles. And that's uh, just such a rich background for what he says. And as we said, he already spoke to the elders because he's a fellow elder. He's going to speak to the young men in this passage this morning, or maybe more generally to all the young people, because guess what? He was a young person once upon a time, and, uh, and he wants to teach some things. And then he's going to speak to all believers and, because he's a part of the body of Christ, and he's going to root all of this in our relationship with God and who he gives grace to and who he is actively resisting. 
So let's look at the exhortations here. The first one, and I have just followed the New American Standard here, is to young men in the church. Now, by that I don't mean just when you're at church. Uh, I'm saying those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who are part of his church. This has to do with relationships, in this case, to the elders. Now, some of your translations simply say younger ones, and young be subject to the elders, being elders being the older people in the church. That is a possible understanding of this verse. But it seems like since elders was just used to refer to the leaders in the church, that they would be consistent that that, then this also refers to the leaders in the church. Now, it's possible that then it would be just all of you who are younger be submissive to the leaders in the church. So the question is, why does the New American Standard translate it young men? And it's based, based, primarily based upon that word likewise, uh, what about the fourth word in, in, in verse 5. The word likewise has used, been used of, of husbands likewise to what I just said to the wives. And so it usually refers to some kind of a close relationship, a, a similar relationship. And so then, if it's taken that way, it would be understood as you young men who want to be in charge of the church. Uh, You young men who think you know better than the elders who are leading the church. And that would be who it is addressed to. I mean, it's an amazing young thing to be a young man. And some of you are young men and you can say, amen. It is an amazing thing and it's good for me to be around young men, my own children included. As Camilla says, young men, what makes them so good at combat makes them horrible for insurance risk. (laughs) And it's just the great economy of God in what is going on there. And so the particular command, whether you take it as younger ones to elders or whether you take it as young men to elders is be subject to the elders. The word subject is the word submission it is a military term that, that refers to lining up under. The word submission in the scriptures is all couched in the greater understanding that God is the ultimate authority and that God works through authority figures. Whether they are good or whether they are evil, God is over them all. And that if we want to experience God's work in our life, Being submissive to those who are in authority over us is a key part of that. And so maybe we can say this, submission to authority is the way one benefits from what those in authority have to offer and experience what God is doing. Uh, This is such a key reality throughout the scriptures. It's been used several times. Go back to chapter 2, verse 13 where it says, all of you who are followers of Christ, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors or so on and so forth. And so there's the call to be submissive to government leaders. Chapter 3, oh, verse 18 uh, of that chapter, servants or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, You wives be submissive to your own husbands. 
And right in the middle of all of that is the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was submissive, yes, to his father, but submission to his father meant to be submissive to religious leaders that were totally wrong and to the Roman authorities. Because that's the way that God the Father accomplished his grand purposes in Christ. And so submission to authority is the way one benefits from what those in authority have to offer and experience what God is doing in their own life. Now, uh, whether it's young men or young women, if it's young men who are aspiring to be elders, just as a practical thing, one of the first things that you look for in a young man aspiring to be an elder is, are they living under authority? It's just a general principle. I learned this in the military as well. To be, if you move someone who doesn't know how to be submissive to authority into a position of authority, they will be abusive. So one of the, one of the characteristics of someone who is qualified to be elevated to a greater level of leadership is, do they live in submission to the leadership that they're under right now? And that's probably very much of what the Apostle Peter is saying. And of course, he was a young buck one day, and he had to get hammered around a little bit, didn't he? And so, he's now passing on to the young men what he himself had to learn now, let me just give you a little bit of a test scenario on whether, and what I want to know is, is this submission or not? Okay, you ready to have some fun? Okay. So, John had a fender bender, uh, my son John. Uh, how old are you, John? 19? Yeah. And his sister, Louisa. And, and so, consequently, he got a new, two new fenders in the front. And so, this thing's sitting in the driveway. And you know that the law says you can't walk up to a drive-up window in order, okay? Which is really a pain in the neck if you're, you know, if you flew someplace in your hotel and the place is closed, you can't walk up in order at a drive-up window. Um, and so anyway, they decided to go up to Starbucks up here <laughs> and to walk through with this front of the car and to order. The first problem they encountered is that the order thing, they didn't weigh enough for it to register that they were there. <laughs> no matter how much they jumped up and down. So they just walked on around or drove on around, depending on your interpretation of what this picture is, until they got to the window. And the poor Starbucks guy was a little surprised to see them there because they had not ordered yet. And I think it frustrated him a little bit because it kind of messed up the whole order. The guy beside him, John and Louisa, said, was cracking up, having a blast with this whole thing. So I want to ask you, is this submission or not submission to the law that you cannot walk up to a drive-up window? Okay? How many think, no, I won't take a vote. How many think it's just, how many think it's just fun? Yeah, yeah, and I think they have a plan to show up a lot of other places in Huntington Beach. So, uh, might as well get some use out of that crazy thing. Ashlyn was their videographer, and uh, she only did four seconds, so 
it goes really fast, and I knew you would never get the context. But anyway, moving back to the passage, submission is something that flows out of humility. Out of humility. If you ask Louisa, that whole experience was very humiliating. <laughs> if you ask John, it was exhilarating. And so anyway, it flows out of humility. And so the Apostle Peter now moves on to that by saying, clothe yourself, all of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. So all followers of Jesus in the church, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. This means whether you're a man or a woman, clothe yourself with humility. This means no matter what your social standing is, rich, poor, in between, clothe yourself with humility. This means no matter what your ethnicity is, clothe yourself with humility. This means no matter what you have experienced in life, clothe yourself with humility. This is a calling upon every single follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to clothe ourselves with humility. Well, what is humility? Let me give you a definition for humility as well as for pride. Humility, living in recognition of who we are dependent upon and accepting one's position, one's role, position, and way of living in God's kingdom. So, before we look at pride. So, so humility means that there's a recognition of who we're dependent upon. We are dependent upon God. We're dependent upon God to tell us about our identity, who we really are. We are dependent upon God to tell us what our role is. We are dependent upon God to tell us how to live. We're dependent upon God to be able to live the way that he tells us to live. And if you pull all that together, that is humility. Humility means that we agree with God's view of us. We agree with what it looks like to live based upon who we are in Christ. And we live that life in the power and the ability that God alone can give us. Pride is the opposite of humility. Thinking more highly or lowly of oneself than what God says, acting in ways contrary to what God says, and we could even include in there trying to live in God's ways in our own power and strength. So this is a plumb line. Many of you will recognize this. And it's used as an illustration in Scripture often, especially in the Old Testament. It's something that uh, contractors use to get a wall or something straight because it always goes plumb. And what Peter is saying is, is live your life in humility. Agree with who God says you are as a Christian. Agree with your role and what he's called you to do. Agree with how he's called you to live. That would be all the moral commandments. And agree that you can only live the moral commandments in his power and strength. And on both sides of this, then, are pride. Uh, if you think more highly of yourself than what God says, that's pride. 
If you think less of yourself than what God says, that is also pride. If you think that you should be serving in a greater role than what God says, that is pride. If you think you aren't good enough to serve in the role he's called you to, that's pride. So you can see how this is what God calls us to. Take Moses, for example. Moses bounced around on both sides of this as he matured and God got him to the plumb line of humility. So, for example, at 40 years old, Moses, in a righteous indignation for what was being done to his own people, took things and wanted to live out that righteous indignation in his own power and strength and not in God's timing, and he went out and killed a man and got a reputation that he had to flee. That's pride. Forty years later, God comes to him, Yahweh comes to him in the burning bush, and he says, you're my man. You need to go, and you need to lead my people out of Egypt. And what did Moses say? I'm not your man. You got the wrong guy. And what happens in the burning bush thing there is God brings him into the plumb line of humility. So that it is said of Moses, not the man Moses was very humble more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And so the same thing with Peter. I mean, we have lots of instances of Peter on both sides, don't we? And some dead down the middle. So, for example, in Matthew 16, Jesus says, so who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do we know that? Because Jesus says, yeah, man didn't reveal that to you. God showed you that. That's humility. You spoke what God said. In the next verse, Jesus starts talking about how he's going to suffer and die. And Peter says what? No. I mean, these can happen fast, can't they? He's all the way over here, and Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. Okay? And then, you know, the whole denials, that whole thing over here, I don't know where that is, one side or the other. And then Peter goes back fishing. And what does God do while he's fishing? Peter's saying, no, I'm not who you say I am. And Jesus comes after him. And Peter gets irritated. Do you love me? He gets irritated to ask him three times. What was Jesus doing? He's trying to get him right back to here. All of us bounce around as God works on us to get us to be humble before him. And so he says, clothe yourself with humility. Let's see if I can tie this thing up here. Clothe yourself with humility. Now, it's very possible. uh, Well, the word clothe is a very interesting word because it's only used this place in all of the Bible. And uh, it's used actually of what a slave would put on when they were going to serve. It's only used of slaves when they get ready to serve. It was a particular apron that they would put on gathering up their their garments to serve other people. And you can't help but wonder, as Jesus, as, as the Apostle Peter has come alongside the people to exhort them, 
if he's not referring and thinking back to the Last Supper, when, when he was exhorted, along with the others that evening, there in John 13. John 13. Can you forward that thing for me? It's not cooperating very well here. You might want to just flip over to John 13. If not, I'll read it, and you can follow along. This is on the night the Lord will be betrayed. John 13, beginning in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now there you see a, a beautiful statement of Christ's humility. He knew who he was. He knew who was calling the shots in his life, his father. And he was just emphasizing that. And if you're going to serve in humility, you always have to begin with that point. And that's where Jesus begins. It says he got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. So he did what a slave would do. In pulling up his garments, he didn't use a particular apron, he used a towel in this case. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not really realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. One can't help but wonder if Peter is reflecting back on this experience. For in the Roman culture in which they lived and much of that culture the Jews had adopted, especially if you were a free Roman citizen, you would never serve anybody else. And the lowest form of servanthood would be to wash someone's feet. And so Jesus blows this out of the water because he understood who he was. He understood who his father was. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going to. And so he serves in the most menial ways that anybody in that culture could serve. 
And what he's saying is, while free Roman citizens would never humble themselves and serve others, for that's for slaves, he says to those who are followers of Christ, you are free in Christ. Follow in his ways. Tie the apron of humility and serve one another. Not because you're less, but because you're complete in Christ. And those who are complete in Christ can live and love other people as Jesus loved them. And so he says, all of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. He moves on with an explanation of this because these aren't just nice sayings from an apostle. These are rooted in the very character and nature of God and his relationship with his people. And he goes back and pulls a verse out of the book of Proverbs. It's repeated in James. I mean, this theme runs throughout Scripture. But he says, here's why this is a big deal. Because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's say that together. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why it's so important to be humble. In fact, the word opposed is quite a strong term. It it was used of the Greek army aligning itself in opposition to the other force. And so what Peter is saying here is you need to understand when you are proud, God sets himself in an array as one draws out their troops for battles. This is no passivity thing. God is actively opposed to those who are proud. Peter had quite a few of those moments where he understood that in the person of Christ, didn't he? And he's saying, you know, you may not have Jesus in the flesh, but you need to know that when you are proud, when you think more of yourself or less of yourself than what God says, when you start in roles that you shouldn't be in, or not serving where you should, or you don't follow my moral law by the power of my spirit, you need to understand, God doesn't just say, oh well, hopefully they get it someday. He is actively opposed. Actively opposed. Which makes the next part of the truth even better, huh? But he gives grace to the humble. He opens the fire hydrant of his grace to those that are humble. I don't know about you, but do you want his shepherding? Do you want his protection? Do you want his forgiveness? Do you want his grace so you can forgive others as you've been forgiven? Do you want his healing? Do you want his love? Do you want his hope? Do you? Say yes really loud, I hope. Yeah. Well, man, that's just all part of His grace that just comes to us as we live humbly before Him. It all comes to us. And and we're going to ricochet around. But man, all of His opposition for children of His is so that we will get humble. 
I mean, next time you read through the Gospels, just notice Peter. Notice how much time Jesus spends with all of his disciples trying to get them out of pride and into humility. I mean, there's so many accounts of this, aren't there? They're headed to the Last Supper. And he says, so what are you guys talking about on the way? Oh, nobody said a word. They didn't know he knew. Oh, we're talking about who's the greatest among us. I mean, it, it just read the Gospels through this lens and see how Jesus was opposed to their pride, working to make them humble people. And he wasn't tactful oftentimes. This is not a tactful God. This is a God who hates pride because it robs us of himself. It robs us of an identity that is true. It robs us of fulfilling the roles that he has gifted and saved us and called us to do. It robs us of the life that he's called us to live in his power for his glory. There's a second phrase here that emphasizes this same truth. It's found in the next verse there, the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God is a term that especially comes out of of God bringing his own people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land of abundance, out of being slaves to Pharaoh and being free to live in the abundance and worship of who God is. The mighty hand of God is the often repeated description of God's care in guidance, protection, provision, and redemption of his people from slavery. So here's some verses, uh, three, three different verses that emphasize this. This is, that, let me give you a little context. Moses is standing at the Bernie Bush. Uh, God, Yahweh, is talking to him. And Moses has now humbled himself. And, and, and a verse before this, God says, go and tell the elders of Israel what my plan is. And this is where we pick up. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go. Isn't it interesting how nice they were? Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And if you're familiar with the story, you know how it plays out with the 10 plagues that come along and the brutal destruction that is brought to that land because Pharaoh thought he had the mightiest hand. And in all, every one of those plagues, God judges a particular God or deity that Pharaoh worshipped. And ultimately, he broke Pharaoh himself. Now, as they get ready to go into the promised land some 40 years later, Moses reminds them of the uniqueness of the true and living God. He says, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes? What's the answer to the question? 
No. No. All the other gods are all under Satan and all they care about is using and destroying people. It's only the true and the living God who moves in and uses nations and nature and powerful rulers and ordinary people to bring his people through out of slavery. Now, lest the Hebrews would think that they they got this because they were uh, unique and uh, special. Well, they were special. Moses goes on and reminds them, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For in fact, you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so when the apostle Peter here says the mighty hand of God, it should evoke the picture of a God who comes after those who are his. And his hand is bigger than the hands of any other people. And he will bring his people all the way through. Do you think the mighty hand of the American government is any bigger than the mighty hand of God? No. You think that mighty hand of whoever you're working for is bigger than the mighty hand of God? No. You think that pain in the neck neighbor has a mightier hand than the mighty hand of God? I mean, just think about whatever situation you're in. I mean, all of them are wimps compared to Pharaoh. And God proved that he would do his redemptive work through his mighty hand. And so, do you want to live under the mighty hand of God? He goes on and then gives us this instruction, this application. He says, be humble under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the right time. Now, the New American Standard actually says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this is just a little bit of a nuance, but it was significant, I thought. Um, The verb tense of, of humble is actually a passive tense. Um, So what that means, if it's a middle tense, then we act upon ourselves to put ourselves there. If it's passive, it means that somebody else is humbling us. And the picture here is that God is humbling us. It is God who's trying to get us to live this plumb line of humbly before him. Our responsibility is to be pliable clay in his hands. Our responsibility is is to be humble, to embrace whatever he is doing in our lives. And and to do that just as a default position, knowing that he is God, that he has set his love upon us in Christ, and that he is to be trusted more than what we think, feel, or are experiencing. And so, Be humble under the mighty hand of God. Here at Calvary, um, we've we've described a disciple and how we each should be developing in four different ways. Uh, 
One of the aspects we should be developing is knowing God and how we live our lives according to the scriptures. That comes through in this passage clearly. A second one is engaging in God's church, engaging his family in God's church to become more like Jesus. Well, Peter just addressed that. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. The third one is, is to organize our lives to tell others. But the last one is, and this is what I want to emphasize here, in all things, praising God and seeking his will through prayer. See, one of the growing defaults of a follower of Jesus is, is they just live humbly under God. And in all things, they praise God and they seek his will through prayer. To the extent that we fight against God, to the extent that we grumble and complain, and I know people bring up the Psalms, and it's not like God holds that against you, but why waste your breath? God loves you more than anybody else, and he has orchestrated all the events and all the people that you might be clothed with humility that I might be clothed with humility. Just live humbly under the mighty hand of God. And what? That he might exalt you at the proper time. That's an amazing phrase. It doesn't mean that God exalting you is some indefinite thing. God has a target date and a target way to exalt you. You ever thought about that? The God who caused this whole world to come into creation just when he said, and it happened. The God who caused the nation of Israel to walk out on dry land and watch Pharaoh's army to be swallowed up right on the date that God planned it. The God who sent forth his son to be born in Bethlehem on precisely the date that he was supposed to be born the God who caused and poured out his wrath upon his only begotten son as he hung on the cross at the exact time that the Passover lamb had been killed for 1,400 years because he was the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. The God who caused him to rise three days later so that we would always begin our week on a resurrection that God has a specific time and a specific way to exalt every one of his children. He's right on schedule. What do you think about that? Isn't that encouraging? It's not kind of like hang in there. At some point, God will decide. No, he knows. He knows. And he will exalt at just the right time and in just the right way. You say, okay, I get all that, but how do I actually live being humble under the mighty hand of God? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what Peter says finally here. <laughs> Casting all your anxiety, all your worry on him, for he cares for you. You ready for a little surgery here from the word? Where does anxiety and worry fit on this? It's pride. That's what Peter's saying. Casting your cares is, for those of you that love the English language or language, 
is a participle. The verb is be humble. What it means is, you know how you live humbly? You don't worry and you don't have anxiety. Now, the beautiful part is, Peter says here, I know you're going to. He brings it up. And he remember, he's writing to suffering followers of Christ. But he says, here's what you do if you live humbly. You don't stew in your anxiety. You don't stew in your worry. You cast it. And the word is used of putting the uh, clothing on the donkey that Jesus rode on the triumphal entry. You cast it upon the one who cares for you. And cares doesn't mean, oh, the one who likes you. It means the one who provides for you, the one who brought you into this world, the one who gave you an identity, the one who laid down his life for you, the one who's going to exalt you, the one who's got the whole shebang figured out. Cast your cares upon him. You see, worry is pride. Anxiety is pride since it denies to some degree the care of God. It means we've taken upon ourselves responsibility that only belongs to God rather than leaving it with him. Psalm 131 says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That's just a description of I I choose to live humbly before you. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And many of you moms know this way better than I do. But you know how frantic a nursing baby gets. Because the nursing baby hasn't matured enough to know, oh, you're my mother, you'll always be there. Oh, you'll make sure that I eat. Oh, you'll, you'll, you'll take care of me. A nursing baby just screams like they're being tortured when they're hungry. And they're frantic, aren't they? That's what anxiety and worry. Anxiety literally means to be dual-focused. Dual-focused. God calls us to be like a weaned child, to know that it's his mighty hand, and to live the way he orchestrates our lives. Let me ask you just to bow your heads. I'm going to read some of Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6. And I want to ask you in just a particular point of application, what situation are you in right now that you are not like a weaned child. You are concerning yourself with things that are too great for you. Why am I suffering? Why am I sick? Why is my child going through this? Why is my parent going through this? Why? Those matters are too great for us. They're too great for us. And we need to know that God knows, that he cares, And we need to bring our hearts into a humble place before him, not concerning ourselves with matters that are too great for us, 
and just being faithful to what he's called us to be. And so concerning your situation, these are the words of the Lord Jesus. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the year, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to their life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, they do not, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the non-believers, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Father, help us to be like weaned children living in the fullness of your grace. And we may not know anything else, but may we know that you're our Father, that you, Lord Jesus, are our shepherd and Savior and Lord, and that you, Spirit of God, live within us, that we might live and love other people, even as the Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray.